This is a copy of what the first Bible printed in English in America looked like. This Bible was printed by the U.S. Congress in 1782. In the records, it says that this Bible was, quote, a neat edition of the Holy Scriptures for the use of our schools, end quote. So the first Bible printed in America in English was printed by Congress for the use of our schools. It's worse than that. In the front of the cover, it says that Congress resolved the United States and Congress assembled recommend this edition of the Bible to the inhabitants of the United States. So the first Bible printed in English in America was done by the guys who signed the documents, endorsed by Congress, and done for the use of schools. And we're going to be told that they don't want any kind of religion and education. They don't want voluntary prayer. No, it doesn't make sense. This document by itself is fairly significant. But in 1830, Congress commissioned these four paintings over here to recapture what the official record said was the Christian history of the United States. So in these four paintings you have really a span of several hundred years. If I take you through them chronologically, the first is back there, Columbus, landing in the Western world in 1492. Uh, they got out, they knelt down, they had a prayer service. You see the cross they have. They named the land where they had landed San Salvador, meaning Holy Savior, which tells you something of the thinking that was going on then. You come back over my shoulder here, this is the baptism of Pocahontas in Jamestown, and this was in 1613. Uh, over here, the fourth painting is 1620. This is the embarkation of the pilgrims coming to America. You see them gathered around the Bible there. You see the prayer meeting they're having. Now, if you just take those four paintings right there, those four paintings in this great secular hall of government, those four paintings represent two prayer meetings, a Bible study, and a baptism, which is not bad for a secular building. As a matter of fact, you're standing in what, in 1857, was the largest church in the United States. It's the U.S. Capitol. Did that come out of some fairy tale? I mean, is that just made up in Hollywood? That's what they would have you believe today. But our nation was undeniably founded as a Christian nation, one nation under God. Praise the Lord. Well, how many know we have drifted terribly from that founding? But I have confidence that God can reshape the future of America. The past is fixed, though the revisionist historian might try to uh, eliminate portions of it, but the future depends on godly people standing up for what's righteous. How many know you don't have to burn a Koran to get the world's attention, but how many know we do have to stand up for righteousness and truth in this great land of America? And one way that we can stand up in our constitutional republic is that we vote on every election that has opportunity for us and vote for men and women that share the values that you and I have. This next month, we're going to be encouraging everyone, if you're not registered to vote, to register to vote in Arkansas or Texas. There's information in the lobby where you can do that. We've got someone, if you'll just fill it out, they'll take it to the clerk for you so you can participate in the election. I see my role as your pastor uh, is not only to look at the Bible as a historical book, but to take the principles of the Bible, what's taught in the Bible, and make them relevant in modern day life. I mean, oh, you can look in your Bible and you won't find the word stem cell research, but yet you will find God's appreciation, sanctity, and honor for life in all of its stages from conception until death, natural death. Well, how many know we have to take those principles and bring them into our society today? That's part of what I do as your pastor and as a teacher of the Word of God. But I'm going to encourage you to understand more about our nation and what you believe in our Christian heritage. We've got some copies of the Constitution in the lobby that you can pick up as well. They're free. Perhaps you've never read our Constitution and Bill of Rights. There's a resurgence in America today trying to turn America back to the roots that made us great, not into a nation of socialists. How many believe that's the right way to go? Listen, I believe we're one nation under God, not one nation under government. Thank God for government, but government's not our God.
I want to educate you. I ran across another piece of information that you will find very, very interesting. It's called a party platform. Now, this is from the elections back in 2008, but it is simply a comparison between the two major political parties in America, what they believe about major issues. Uh, this was produced by the Southern Baptist Convention. It is an excellent resource. Pick it up. We'll print as many as you need. But this talks about everything from what uh, the parties believe about life, and this is not candidates. This is not some man in the Oval Office. This is not someone who wants to be there. This is what the parties believe about life, about civil rights, about trafficking or slavery or selling people, judicial appointments. And these are only some of the highlights. The economy, homosexuals in the military, same-sex marriage, faith-based initiatives, Israel in the Middle East, stem cell research. A lot of neat things that I encourage you to read. And as I say that, I want to ask you a question. When you look at me, what do you see? Now, do you see a man? Do you see a white man? Do you see a southerner? Or do you see someone that favors a certain political party? Or do you see a man of God that tries to bring the truths from the Bible into daily life? Now, I will suggest to you those four things are four of the most divisive parts of our nation today. The gender division between men and women in America today. Some people base their vote strictly on a person's gender. The next big thing that divides people is race in America today, the color of our skin. It is a huge dividing part. Some people will make their vote on a person just based on the color of their skin. Other people will base their vote or their acceptance or rejection of a person based on their party affiliation. I want to encourage you to see life higher than that and see the values that the person stands behind. Not the TV commercial, not the radio commercial that only says what they think you want to hear, but the values that that man or woman espouses. I had someone recently, uh, I do a lot of radio spots in, in our community and try to tackle the issues of the day. And someone told a friend of mine, said, well, I'm not going to that church because your pastor is a blank. And he filled in the blank. Well, I want to encourage you, hopefully, not to see me as the blank, but see me as a man of God that opens the Bible and tries to make the Bible real to you. Now, parts of the Bible are very clear. It's very clear to me what the Bible says about marriage, about a man and a woman. That's very clear. There's no real question about that. You either choose to embrace it or reject it. But other portions of the Bible, you have to make a little leap. You have to take a principle from the Bible and apply it to today. And I may miss it sometimes. I may say some things that are not right. And if I do, I want to encourage you to bite your tongue and pray for me because it won't take very long to get beyond that point. But if I say something that challenges your tradition, now listen, your tradition or, your, or just your perspective, and it has a biblical root to it, I want to encourage you to shift your thinking towards the Bible and away from your past tradition. Is that a good thing? Can you hang with me on that? Okay, six of you will. The rest of you, uh, I, I hope you will warm up to it. Turn your Bibles this morning to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. You know, God has a perspective on, on every current issue that's going on. He has a perspective on marriage. He has a perspective on burning the Koran. He has a perspective on whether or not a, a, a mosque should be built near ground zero. Sometimes it's very clear. Sometimes it's not. But how many know his believers are in pursuit of truth? Now, the book of Nehemiah, I've been on a series for several weeks called Under Construction. I'll finish it up today, and next week I'll start that new series called Unshakable, Unshakable Faith in an Uncertain World. But in this series, Under Construction, it's been from the book of Nehemiah. We've looked at our interchange system, I-30 out here. I mean, you know, the roads worked fine before they tore them up, but when they rebuild them, they're going to be better than they were. 
And that's what God is doing in our life. He's doing it in your life as an individual. He wants to do some construction and building. He wants to do it in our church as a family of believers. And He wants to do it in our culture and in our nation. He wants to do some rebuilding. Now, you can pick all these up on these messages on the webpage if you're interested. But today I want to look at this man, Nehemiah. Nehemiah, of course, as you remember, he was a Jewish man. He was a slave in captivity in Assyria. Israel had ended up in captivity or judgment because of their sin, but God elevated him to like the king's right-hand man. He was the cupbearer. But he got a burden to go back to his hometown, to Jerusalem. They had rebuilt the temple, and now he wanted to go and rebuild the wall around the city and rebuild the people's spiritual identity. Now, the last time I spoke to you, it was about Nehemiah building a wall. Well, this morning, I want to share some thoughts with you about Nehemiah rebuilding people. See, his concern was not just architectural, his concern was for people. The last time I spoke to you, we, I talked to you about opposition that we face from without. You remember some guys named Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. They opposed him, and any time that you try to do something for God, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to be opposed. There's going to be opposition to you when you stand in that place. But now we're focusing on not problems that were without, but problems that were within their community that were hindering the advancement of the kingdom of God. And there were two. The first one is where we'll read in Nehemiah chapter 5 will be the first half of my message. And it's simply about this. The rich were taking advantage of the poor. They were charging excessive interest. And they were taking advantage of, them, of their brothers and sisters of the same family. And the Bible says that's not right. So the first part of my message is basically challenging you as a New Testament believer to treat your brother and sister right in the family of God. It's not just about money. It's not just about interest charge. But it's about how we treat other believers, other Christians in the body of Christ. The second part of the message has to do with the last chapter of Nehemiah when the nation and the people had begun to drift into their old ways. They were once again embracing a sinful lifestyle. They were marrying pagan women. And the problem with that was a nation that was called to purity that would one day bring forth Christ into the world to guard the laws of God. They were literally bringing idolatry and immorality into their, into their lives and into their homes. And Nehemiah basically challenged them. He was his brother's keeper. You see, he cared, he cared about them, and when they were drifting off track, he intervened, and he got something done in their lives and got them back on track. So let's uh, jump into the message today, Nehemiah chapter 5, and he was what I'm going to call his brother's keeper. Now that phrase, my brother's keeper, is from the book of Genesis. You remember two brothers, Cain and Abel? After sin came into the world, uh, Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. They start having children. And the first murder recorded on the planet is because sin came into the world and Cain killed Abel. And God cornered Cain and he asked him where his brother was. And guess what Cain said? Cain asked this question, am I? Yeah, and obviously the answer was, yes, you are. And how many know we are, in some sense, our brother's keeper as well as believers? They should have done that as in the Jews in Nehemiah's day, but they failed to do it. Now let's read what happened. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. About this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. And they were saying, we have such large families. We need more food to survive. Now, here's the picture. They had been there a number of years. Some of them went out with a lot of money and resources. Some of them went out with not too much. And now they ha are having a problem. Lots of people at home, no food to eat. Their economy is not going well at all. In verse 3, it tells us how desperate it is. We've mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food. 
Now, how many know you may have financial pressure, but you don't have it this bad? They literally would, let's say, for example, take their television, and they wouldn't just get it to the pawn shop for some money, but they would take it to a farmer and say, would you give me a bag of rice? They were literally selling their life, hawking their life. The next verse said they had a heavy tax burden. And how many would like to pay less taxes? Come on. Not more, sure. They have a heavy tax burden. But then they said, we've got to borrow money to pay our taxes. So here basically are people that are oppressed in the economy. Uh, the tax rates are going high. And the people that were behind it was not some evil government official, but it was their brother's fellow Jews. Now, here's the picture of verse 5, and this is what I want you to see, and this is the translation why I chose this version to share this verse. Verse 5 says, we belong to the same family. Can you say same family? See, they're talking about all these Jews. We belong to the same family, and don't we as Christians belong to the same body of Christ? See, we belong to the same body of Christ, whether we're in America, whether we're in Chile, whether we're in Honduras, whether we speak English, whether we speak Spanish, whether we're black, whether we're white. How many know we are Oriental? How many know we are one in the body of Christ? And we meet at the cross. One of the great goals that I have is this church is to allow our church to be a place where p different people can come together and worship the same Christ at the same cross. Are you with me? See, and our, and you know the most segregated hour in America today? It's 11 o'clock on Sunday morning because people naturally cluster with people that are like them. We try to go beyond those boundaries in this church that whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whatever the color of your skin, whatever your background is, how many know if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, we are brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Somebody give the Lord a big praise for that. Now listen, you choose, you choose who you marry, you choose you know, where you go to school, and who your best friend, and all those kind of things you work out. But when, we, when it comes to the main things in our life, we're Christians and we're the family of God together. We're family, the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs, yet we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. Now, I mean, that's pretty bad. We've got to sell our kids into slavery. Just Can you imagine selling one of your, your, your children? I see the Barclays are, are, are back uh, from the East Coast. They're here. Can you imagine selling one of those little girls just to get something to eat? Well, and they weren't. Now, most of the sales that they were doing, they weren't selling them to you know slave traders in foreign countries. They were selling them as indentured servants to Jewish Jewish uh, people with money. It was a problem that was there. In verse seven, uh, verse six, he heard the complaints. He was angry. Verse 7, he spoke out against the nobles and officials and told them, you're hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. And then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. He basically confronted it, and he basically got the people to say, you know what, we were wrong. They gave back the lands that they had taken. They gave back the excessive interest that they had charged. And once again, they got on track treating one another right, taking care of one another in the body. Now listen, you understand that that particular case had to do with, with uh, the charge of interest, the rich taking advantage of the poor, but this is not a call for socialism. This is not a call for redistribution of wealth, nor is it a justification to be lazy. This is simply a way of saying that we as believers have a responsibility to look out for one another. God expects us to take care. In America, we're taught to look out for who? Yeah, look out for number one. But in the kingdom of God, we're taught to take care of who? One another. Now, let me have a throwback to the 60s, a little song that will kind of focus this.
You're just sitting around, come on, you're drinking a beer, you're having a glass of wine, you're just doing whatever you are doing. Looking out for number one, and it justifies you living in a little glass house and not letting anybody else in. Now, Pastor Nick has taken a stab to um, change the theology of the song. Give it a, give it a shot. You'll find out every trick in the book that there's only one way to get things done. You'll find out the only way to the top looking out for your brother in Christ. You'll find out the only way to the top is looking out for your brother in Christ. It's a difference. Mike could be on Jay Leno. He, he, his, his approval rating is pretty, pretty low. 1 John chapter 3, God's people are supposed to take care of each other. Look at verse 16. This is how we know what real love is. Jesus gave his life for us. Now imagine, we love our dogs. We love hamburgers. Come on, we love our job. We use that word, you know, we love someone that looks, you know, fine and nice. But the Bible says real love is this, Jesus gave his life for us. And then there's this next sentence that's a high standard. We should give our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, I can't tell you how far that goes in your life, but I can tell you I can't just look out for number one. I'm supposed to look out for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And, it's, and it gets real practical, verse 17. Suppose someone has enough to live and sees a brother or sister in need, but does not help. Then God's love is not living in that person. My children, we shouldn't love people not only with words and talk, but by our action and what? True caring. That's the essence of Christianity, because what I'm talking about is, is not just dollars and cents. I'm not talking about just writing somebody a check. I'm not talking about giving somebody some money. That's a small part of it, but I'm talking about the way we treat each other. For example, what happens, it's late at night and you've gone to bed and some, uh, one of your Christian friends calls on the phone, the answer machine gets it, and you hear them crying and they want to talk. Do you take a little time, do you roll out of bed, or do you just, or do you just let the machine pick it up? How about this one? Uh, your Christian friend's car is in the shop. Their kids can't ride the bus. Now, you're busy. You've got to get up early as it is, but they don't have a car for a couple days and, and, and they don't know what they're going to do. You know what they need? They need somebody to love them by giving them what? All right, don't be so quiet this morning. How, how about this one? Someone leaves church crying. I see this happen all the time. I catch people at the back door. they got tears in their eyes. Are you doing okay? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, they're not fine. They needed someone that saw them, perhaps that knew them, or perhaps not, that would just say, rather than going out with my friends, well, why, don't I, why don't we go out to lunch today? And You just tell me what's going on in your life. I mean, we all need somebody to care about us. How about this one? Maybe there's a, there's a young boy that's caught your, caught your eye. You watch this little boy. Mom tries to raise him, but he doesn't have a dad. For whatever reason, dad's not in his home. You love to fish. Fishing is what you do to get alone and get away from everything and recreate. And the Holy Spirit knocks on your heart and says, will not you just take that little boy fishing? Now, see, you don't have to take him every time, but, but sometimes Christianity crowds in our life. And we know whether we're just living for ourselves or living for Him and one another. You're way too quiet on me this morning. See, Jesus wants Christians to love one another like family. You know, in the New Testament, words are used to describe our relationship. I'm supposed to treat another Christian man like a what? 
a brother. I'm supposed to treat a younger Christian woman as a, and an older Christian woman as a, a mother, and as an older Christian man as a, as a father. Now, now, the Bible uses language of family to tell us how we're supposed to treat one another. Jesus, in John 13, 34, gave us a great scripture. He said, let me give you a new command. Love one another. In the same way I loved you, so you should love one another. In the same way that I did that, take care of people. You know, the mafia takes care of its own. Gangs, don't they take care of their own? Yeah, they'll kill you if you mess with them. I mean, you mess with somebody, you mess with me, they'll shoot you. I mean, no unions, that's what they used to do. They used to protect, they existed to protect those that they were watching over couldn't defend themselves. They've shifted a bit in modern society today, but they began as a group that would take care of its members. Shouldn't the church do a better job? Shouldn't we as Christian people do a better job at taking care of people? But you know what? I am just like you. First of all, I'm selfish. You didn't have to say, yep, too loud. I was supposed to say it. You were supposed to say, I am too. So let's try that again. Man, I'm, I struggle with being selfish. Not amen. I do too. Let's try it one last time. I sure struggle with being selfish. Yeah, there you go. So we struggle with being selfish. That's the problem all of us have. We're busy as we can be. And most of us just have enough money to kind of get by in the life we're living. I mean, no, we live in a cramped age. But somehow in that, I'm supposed to live out this thing called Christianity. I'm supposed to take care of people. Let me give you another new scripture or two here. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And there's just no way to get around this. There's times when, as a Christian, I've got to accept some personal loss to take care of a believer. Now, the Jews in in the Old Testament, they were simply practicing capitalism. It didn't have good moral boundaries. And you see, that's what's wrong with America today. We want our, our government to be able to impose rules and regulations to control sinful behavior. And the problem is you cannot write enough laws and rules and regulations to control the wicked heart of man. I don't care if they're writing financial reform legislation, if it's health care, if, if it's campaign contributions. People find a way to get around the rules. But if your heart is right, and that was the problem when the Jews were charging too much interest, they were just being good business people. They were being good capitalists. That's how they, that's how they got their money, and that is a good thing. But their business practices should have been bounded by biblical ethics. Come on. It should have been bounded by character and biblical truth, and in their case it wasn't. But sometimes there is just simply personal loss involved when you help somebody, another believer. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 6 Uh, It says after, the context is Christians are suing each other uh, in in court. And guess what they're suing over? M-O. Yeah, it's the same thing today. Here you are taking each other to court before people who don't even believe in God. Now verse 7, these court cases are, are an ugly blot on your community. Now think of the different perspective that we have when someone wrongs us and what God has when He looks down on this whole whole thing. Wouldn't it be far better to just take it let yourself be wronged and forget it. Now, I'm not telling you specifically how to apply that scripture in your life, but I am telling you, maybe not every court case, but some court cases or some issues, rather than you just looking out for number one, you need to release it as unto who? The Lord. It's, you know, forgiveness is a difficult thing. I want you to have justice, and I want me to have forgiveness, right? 
But justice turns the offense over to God to let God take care of it. And guess what God does? God can somehow let the backwash come and, and get us. So if I were to give something that was legitimately mine, legally mine and morally mine, and because we didn't want to bring a besmirchment to the name of Christ, I just sacrificed and gave it away. Don't you think the God who gave it to me in the first place can give me not only that back, but many times more? And why would I do that? It's because I'm conscious of Christ. Now, you have to be careful. Here's what I find. I find many, many Christians take advantage of other Christians because they are Christians. They want them to do a job for them less than they would charge somebody else. They want them to give them, you know, free rent, or they want them to give them that simply because we're Christians. That's equally wrong, and that causes a problem. See, how I many know there's a number of different aspects that come into this? You know, the same Bible that teaches us to care for people says, if you don't work, how many, how, many, how many like to eat? Let me see your hand. Yeah, yeah. How, how, many, how many would really rather not go to work? Let me see your hand. So we have a dilemma. So the same Bible that talks about, that talks about helping other people also kind of is warning us not to take advantage of people's goodness. See? But if you don't work, you don't eat. Um, anyway, it's throughout the Bible. But I want to encourage you just to pause a minute and just to see that Nehemiah was concerned as a leader. He was looking out not just for himself, but he was looking out for other people. You know the scripture early in the book of Acts, Acts chapter, uh, I think it's chapter 2 or chapter 4, or chapter 2, when, when believers had come from all over, the, all over the Mediterranean world to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Now they had come, it was a pilgrimage, and they were going to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. They had no idea that the Holy Spirit was going to fall in the upper room, and thousands were going to come to Christ. They had no idea that they were going to be living there a while. And when they were living there, full of the Spirit serving God, they ran out of money. They didn't know they were going to have to get a job, and the Jews wouldn't hire the Christians. So here you've got all these impoverished people, and guess what the solution was? It was not for God to send a raven with food in his mouth like he did for the prophet. God simply had those people that had houses and lands and monies. The Bible says they sold them. They gave the money to the apostles and they distributed to people that they had need. So sometimes God will put resources in your hand, not just for you, but it's to help somebody. How many people have a problem with that? Let me see your hand. No, I do. I'm raising mine. Because when God gives me something, it's whose? Mine. See, the same thing I learned when I was one year old. Mine has lingered with me 53 years. Do, do anybody else have that problem? And it is hard for me when something comes my way. When extra money comes your way, come on. the first thing you think about is who you can give it to, right? No, you're just like me. The first thing I think about is, well, duck season's coming up. They got a sale at Gander Mountain. Can we just be real? I try to be very real in this church. But sometimes in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit may say, this is what I want you to do. And if you can do it, something just happens on the inside when you're living for Christ. Whether you get it back or whether you're not, it's not the issue. How many know we're supposed to treat one another right and we're supposed to do what the Lord says? Punch your neighbor and say, this is good this morning. Now, whether we want to practice it or not is another story. Go to chapter 13, and let me look at the second half now. There was two things Nehemiah did when he treated people right. The first had to do with, with taking care of an injustice that was there. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 23. Now we've got the problem is the Jews that were there were returning to the same sinful ways that got them in trouble in the first place. And Nehemiah said, this can't be. 
About that time, verse 23, I realized some of the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. You say, well, what's the problem with that? There was a big problem. Now, verse 25 is a verse that just, I don't know how I can explain away. Nehemiah, when he saw this, went crazy. Verse 25, he said he confronted them, and he called down curses on them. He beat some of them and pulled out their hair. All they did was just marry this good-looking woman from across the country. Pulled out their hair. I need, a, I need someone to demonstrate this with today. I need a volunteer. <laughs> Jeremy, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. He'd be arrested today. He would, he'd be all over the news, just like this guy in Florida, pulling out people's hair because they were sinning. He said, I made them swear in the name of God that they wouldn't let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the land. See, here's what we think is modern American. What was the big deal? If that's what they want to do, can't they do it? Here's what we forget in life. We forget that God is the one that makes boundaries. And when we live within the boundaries, stay within the lines, things go well. And when we get out of the lines, sooner or later, things fall apart. And Nehemiah said, wasn't this exactly what led King Solomon of Israel into sin? I demanded there was no king from any nation who could compare to him. God loved him and made him king over all Israel. He ruled the nation at its peak of, of nationalism and sovereignty and wealth and prosperity. He was the guy that was on top. But look at what it says. Even he was led into sin by foreign wives. And what these ladies did, they, they came in cute, but they brought in their idols and before you know it, they were practicing idol worship. They were offering their babies to the god Molech, which means they were sacrificing that child into a fiery idol. And they saw that as an act of worship. They practiced temple prostitution. I mean, there were all sorts of pagan things that infiltrated the people of God. Nehemiah saw it and he went crazy. He, 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 because he realized that's what got them in trouble in the first place. They're in the mess they're in because of their sin. Hey, that rhymes. Can you write a song? They're in the mess they're in because of their sin. How could you even think of committing this sinful deed and acting unfaithfully towards God by marrying foreign women? Now look at verse 30. I purified them of everything that was foreign. Now, I, I don't know how they let him do that, but somehow he came in, he cleaned house. Now, I want to suggest to you, don't pull out anybody's hair but I think we need to have the same concern for sin in a brother or sister's life that causes us to do whatever we can to help them get out of the trap. And let me tell you why. It's because sin is serious. Can you say sin is serious? But you say, well, now, I couldn't do that, preacher. That's not my business. That's their business. Well, I thought they were your brother or sister. I thought they were kinfolks. And don't you go out of your way to help your family? Sure you do. Uh, let's say if you're at a public swimming pool, maybe you're on vacation or, or somewhere, you're at the pool, somebody's dropped a glass, a glass, and it's shattered all over the ground. You're sitting there in your chair getting suntan. Barefoot kids are running around. What are you going to do? Nothing. Just kind of watch. It's just their foot. No, what would you do? You'd get out of your chair, and you'd stop them, and you'd say, you need to put on your shoes. We went to get a broom because there's glass. We don't want to cut your foot. So if we protect a child from cutting his foot, and we're not going to protect someone whose eternal soul is at stake? See, their future and the future of generations to come, if they continue the way that they are. 
Now, understand me. It's difficult to talk to people about their sin because, first of all, they'll say, who you judge me? You know, we've got to be careful of our attitude, and you may not be able to talk to them about God, but if you can't talk to them about God, you can talk to God about them. I, I don't know how cell phone technology works, but my wife is with a group of ladies, probably 60 of them, went to a ladies' retreat. They're there now. But she's been texting me and calling me. I, I don't even know where she is. I couldn't find her. I mean, I, I could figure it out sooner or later, but I don't know where she is. But that cell phone signal can somehow, through a tower, bounce down and find her. And you can communicate through the heart of people through your prayer. Come on. And God can get a hold of their lives. And let me tell you this. Sin is serious and it destroys lives. Now I want you to just kind of shake yourself just a second and give me about ten more minutes this morning. Sin is serious and it destroys lives. You say, what do you mean? Romans 6.23, it says the wages or the outcome of sin is what? Yeah, now we say that very easy and very lightly. But can I tell you, people have been dying ever since Adam and Eve because of sin. Janet Smith, many of you know Janet, longtime church member, her dad passed away. Uh, they're having visitation today at 4 at Chapelwood and tomorrow morning at 11, a graveside in, in Redwater. Why did her dad die? The same reason your parents died or your child died or your friends died. We all are experiencing the consequences of sin. Sin is serious. Sin, listen, sin sends people to hell. Eternal judgment from God is because of what? Sin. Sin caused Jesus to come to the cross. It may not be a big deal in America, but sin is, is a big deal to God. Now, if you don't believe that today, you ask the person who lost their job because they stole money. If you don't believe sin is serious, ask the man who lost his family because he committed adultery. If you don't think sin is serious, listen, ask the person who killed somebody in a fit of rage and now is in jail for the rest of their life. If you don't believe sin is serious, listen, ask the coach or recently in the newspaper, the rodeo guy, ask them if pornography won't cost you your life. Ask them if pornography won't lead you to have sex with an underage person and end up on the front page of the newspaper. See, our Supreme Court will say it's a right for the pornographer to do, but if you embrace the sin, I want to tell you, sin will destroy your life. It is serious. It's like glass strewn throughout the house. You need to make those kids get shoes on or stay where they are until you get cleaned up. That's a good place for amen. Go to Galatians chapter 6 because this is not just an Old Testament passage. This is the way New Testament Christianity is lived out. If I really care about somebody caught in sin's trap, I will get them out. That's what Nehemiah did. Galatians 6, verse 1 and 2, New Testament. Dear, who does he, who does he call these believers? Yeah, I want everybody to say it again. Brothers and sisters. Now, in the way family's supposed to be. If any believer is overcome by some sin, you should ignore him. You should find another friend. You should make fun of him. You should forget about him. No, you who are godly should do what? Gently and humbly. Not arrogantly, not, you know, self-righteously, but you should gently and humbly help that person back on the right path. How I many know oh, that's a good thing? Help that person back on the right path because you are your brother's yeah, help them back on the right path. And James, and I'll, I'll close with this one. James 5, verse 19, my, again, what does he say? Brothers and sisters, if any of you wanders from the truth and someone helps that person come back, remember this, that anyone who brings a sinner back from the wrong way 
will save that sinner's soul from death and will cause many sins to be forgiven. Here's what it's saying. Sin has eternal consequences to it. It, it, you may feel like sin is operating in your life and it's not a big deal. And, you know, so what? That's just the way I live. That's the way everybody live. I mean, you know, people just sleep together. They live together. They just, you know, we just what we do in America today. But just because there hadn't been consequences yet doesn't mean that there won't be consequences. And the Bible enjoins we that are trying to live the Christian life that are supposed to be spiritual to help people that are off base get back on base. To help them before they cut that foot on the, on the glass. Well, sin may not be a big deal in America, but it's serious to God. And if you really love people, guess what you'll do? You'll help them get out of the trap. Uh, last scripture, John 13. We've read it already. Let me give you a new command. These are the words of Jesus Christ. Love one another. In the same way I loved you, you should love one another. And this is how everyone will recognize that you're my disciples when they see the love that you have for each other. It's not just words, but it's the way we treat one another. How many would like to be a part of a family of believers like that? Boy, I sure would. I sure would. We show our love in two ways. And this, this message, just in summary for our close, we show our love by, number one, taking care of our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Whether it's a financial need, whether it's whatever, a material need, or whether it's a personal need, a relational need, we want to help people. And secondly, we, take, we show our love for them where they're keeper by helping them get out of the trap of sin. Amen? Did you get anything out of this today? Thank God. All right. Well, next week we'll start with Unshakable, Saturday night at 6 o'clock if you want to join us. And make sure you pick up some of those invitation cards on your way out. I want to close with prayer today because I think this message probably struck a chord in you. And, and why don't we pray along these lines? First of all, you remember when I talked about taking care of one another and you started wiggling in your chair and kind of moving back? Why don't we just pray this? Lord, help me not be so selfish. Now, I've admitted my fault. I don't know if you'll admit yours, but could we just pray, Lord, help me to be less selfish and, and more loving to other people. Let me have compassion like you did. And then this second part, Lord, I bet you there's a lot of you here today when we were talking about people trapped in sin. I bet you thought of somebody. Could we just pray that God would show you how to reach out to them, that you would be able to do it in a humble and a gentle way, that you'd be able to help them? And thirdly, I wonder if perhaps the Holy Spirit put His finger on something in your life, some sin that is controlling you, some sin that is defining you. It's like if you were to put ankle weights on your ankles and go swimming, pretty soon you couldn't tread water. Pretty soon those ankle weights would pull you under. Well, if you've got something in your life, could we just ask God not just to forgive us, but help us break out of the grip of sin? See, His forgiveness is free, but don't you get tired of just the cycle that perpetuates itself? Don't we need put a little faith behind the grace of God to help us be overcomers? Well, Lord, these are our prayers this morning, and I'm going to lead the way that, Lord, you would help me, help us all be less selfish. Just help us to have a heart that loves people. Help us look out, Lord, genuinely for our brothers and sisters in Christ, because one day we may be the one that needs looking out for, and I hope we'll be able to reap what we've sown. Help us, Lord, to be less selfish. And number two, if there's someone that's come to our mind today that's shackled, that's captured by sin, Lord, would you show us how to reach them? 
Certainly we can start talking to you about them, but show us how to reach them. If they're a family member, particularly if they're a, a teenager or a child, it's difficult. But would you bring people in their life that will influence them towards a godly path? Would you help our friends, Lord, not to be shackled by this trap? And lastly, for all of us that are here today that have struggles in our, the dark side of life, we've got things that we know are wrong. We're grateful for the forgiveness of God, but we're just really tired of having to start our prayer life by saying, Lord, would you forgive me? Lord, we want to ask that there would be an impartation of grace. And if you're identifying with this, all eyes are closed, but if you want God to give you some grace to overcome some area of your life, why don't you just slip your hands to heaven? See, what you're doing by that is you're yielding yourself to God. Yieldingness is a key to being filled with the Holy Spirit. And what you've been unable to do in the strength of your flesh and discipline, we're going to pray that God would give you grace to live a holy and a pure life. Holy Spirit, we need it right now. We just pray that you would baptize us afresh with grace to overcome those areas of our life that Satan seems to have a foothold. And we welcome you today in, in Jesus' name. Praise the Lord. Hey, here's how we're going to close our service today. And, and we're going to start doing this, particularly uh, in, in, our, in all three of our services. But rather than, we used to have prayer in the middle of service. And the problem with, the good thing about it is, you know, people come forwards and worship and prayer is good, but it's always so short. And every once in a while, someone needs a little more time. They need to talk to someone just a little bit. So we're going to try doing that at the end of the service where we can make time because we've got some godly people that are filled with the Spirit. I mean, they move in the gifts. Uh, they prophesy. Uh, you can have an encounter with the living God, not just a little 25-cent prayer. But if you're here today and you need, you need God to help you in some way, because here's what I know. I know everyone, uh, many of us brought some real heavy burdens in church today. Many of us have not been able to shake that burden through worship. Many of us have some big problems that are ahead of us. We've got some big decisions. We've got some challenges in our life. And, and, and some, there's something about two people joining with it. Hey, you ever tried to pick up something by yourself and you just couldn't do it? And if you knew you did, you'd hurt your back. But you saw somebody come along and say, Can you help me pick this up? And when somebody picked up on the other end, it made the load lighter. That's what happens when two people pray together. See, when you believe for the power of God, you've got a prayer, you've got a receiver, and you've got the Holy Spirit that are at work there. And if you're here today and you need prayer in some way, in just a minute we're going to stand to our feet and we're going to sing a chorus. And as, we, as we stand, I want you to just come to the front. Our prayer team will meet you here. You may be sick in your body. And did you know that the Bible teaches in the book of James that if any are sick, let them call for the elders of the church. They'll all anoint with oil, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. And if they've committed sins, they'll be forgiven. So whatever it may be, or you may want to stand in the gap for somebody else. You may have someone that you love and you care about that's really their life is messed up, that they're in sin, and you want someone to agree with you, kind of go into that cell tower. We'll pray for you in just a second. But the last group that I would include is perhaps the most important. Because how many know you cannot have an ongoing walk with God until your walk with God starts? Did you know there's a starting place to be a Christian? Now, I was raised in a family where my mom, you know, pretty much made me go to church, and we were a Christian family, but just because you're raised in a home or you go to church or have a Bible doesn't make you a Christian. I mean, what makes you a Christian is when you have turned to become a follower of Jesus Christ. When you have come to that place in your life where you ask God for forgiveness of your sins and you're willing to give Him the keys to your life. I had the privilege last Friday to lead someone to Christ. And uh, that was the illustration we used. It's like you're driving a car in your life, and uh, Jesus is in the back seat. And whenever you get in real trouble, 
You call like 911 help, and you say, God, please help me, please help me. And he does, and after he helps you, you know, like your car is stuck and he pushes you out, you put him back in the back seat till you need him again. Well, some of us have done a little better job as we want him to be in the front seat with us, but he doesn't want to just be in the front seat. He wants to drive your life. And the defining mark for being a Christian is when you come to that place, is when you say, Jesus, I don't want to live for myself any longer. I want to live fully and completely for you. And you pull your life over to the side of the road. You put it in park, and you get out and say, Jesus, you take the keys to my life. I want you to be my Lord, and I want you to be my Savior. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Listen, that's becoming a Christian. It is your faith in Him. It is your trust in you receiving Him. Now, perhaps you have never done that before. Or perhaps you're a believer and got away from God. But today you want to come back. When we begin to sing, you come and someone will pray with you today. Go ahead, Pastor. Begin to sing. And our prayer team is coming now. Why don't you stand to your feet? Sing it with us one time. And before you're dismissed, and if you want prayer for anything, you want to get right with God, you've got some struggles or needs, you come now and they'll pray for you. Come, let us pray for you today before you go.